There's a proverb I once came upon that goes like this. Mountains don't mix with mountains. I'm not sure I ever quite got the gist of what it actually means, but now when I think of that phrase, I think of the view from certain high places, from which you can see all sorts of static shapes jutting up, the jumbled and jagged silhouettes of summits, all that dark rock seemingly scissored badly against the sky, stark and unmixed. Sometimes I have asked friends and walking companions which mountain they'd most want to get tattooed onto their bodies. A profile of a favourite peak that could be done in ink. The answers have been various. For many years I have thought my theoretical mountain tat might be of Mount Oakley in central Tasmania, which when seen from a certain perspective seems to be a flat massive that breaks off into shards crumbling into a deep gorge at the edge of a paddock of bronze button grass. But then I met a young woman working at a bar in Reykjavik, who turned around after serving me. On the back of her neck she had the outline of Hekla, an infamous volcano in Iceland, which throughout the Middle Ages was thought of as the gateway to hell. I reckon it's the best tattoo I've ever seen. But perhaps there is another mountain peak in a distant country that could be worth marking on my skin as a memorial of sorts. Some years ago I travelled to Montenegro to catch up with a mad mate. We'd both come from separate parts of Europe and selected Montenegro as our middle ground because we'd read you could saunter about and camp in the mountains. We bought maps and picked out a route by which we might connive our way up and through a compact limestone range. But when we took our plans back to the pension where we had a room, the proprietor was hostile. That was too dangerous, he said. There was too much snow, too many wild boars. The water wasn't safe to drink. We'd fall off a cliff. Oh yes, we would certainly die. It's good to listen to local advice. But after a little more hyperbole, we told him that we would have a crack at that route anyway and just see how it went. We hoped we might comfort him by saying that we were both working as mountain guides in Tasmania. His face changed. He suddenly took on a warped accent somewhere between Australian and Scottish and swore at us mercilessly. You fucking bastards, he said. Why didn't you fucking say so? Of course you should hike in these mountains then. But you don't want to take that route. There's a much better way up there. On our last night in those mountains, we drank from our flask of schnapps, whipped up a risotto, and watched a vivid sunset illuminate the peaks all around us. And my mad mate fixed his sights on one that rose like a canine tooth into the sky. What do you reckon, he said. And so at 5am the next morning, carrying only roasted almonds in our pockets, we scrambled up the backside of this chossy peak scaring the chamois off the ridgeline and looking out on a broad panorama of previously unseen mountains. Later we got a magnifying glass out over our maps and learned the peak's name, Zupsi. Returning to the pension, we were coy about telling our host that we'd gone up there. Perhaps it had been a little bit of a risky move after all. Yet after we'd recapped our trip for him, one of us slyly wondered aloud, 
What about that really sharp tooth of a mountain that sticks up over the valley? It's, it's maybe called Zupsi or something like that. And the proprietor groaned and took on his Australian Scottish accent again and then leaned his head back and laughed. Ah, you fuckers, he said. You climbed it, didn't you? Idiosyncratic mountains can stay in your mind forever. Unlike so many other memories, they don't seem to want to recede. Not quickly, anyway. Mountains don't mix with mountains. But then again, standing on a Tasmanian mountaintop in the evening, looking out on the ranges that fade in various shades of blue out towards several different oceans, it can be hard to isolate the various peaks. For a long time I have been both comforted and troubled by this, by the mountains beyond the mountains. There is always another trip planned, another route to be explored. There is always another dream. Once, on the summit of the highest mountain in Tasmania, I became dizzy looking out on all these ranges. Someone saw how blanched I looked and asked what was wrong. I'm going to spend much of my life out there, I said, gesturing haphazardly towards it all. It will never be finished. My years in the mountains will all blur together in that blue haze. live out in the country, sort of where the farmland meets forest. And it seems that every block in my neighbourhood has at least one little corner where a pile of rocks has been moved from across the property. For farmers, rocks are a nuisance. They're obstacles. They break equipment. It's best not to have them strewn across the paddocks. Even the property on which I rent a very small part which is no longer a functioning farm. It has its rock pile, and it's just near the train carriage. And judging from the amount of moss and ferns that have grown upon it, that mound has existed for a couple of decades at least. At first glance, the natural life of the forest here seems not to have endured too much human interference. But look a little closer and you'll see signs of both recent and ancient changes. You get the feeling that it's pretty early on in its cycle of growing up and filling out this forest. Old tree trunks up on the ridge wear black marks from some sort of fire. And it would have been the kind of country used to Aboriginal burns. It's well known that the adjacent river was a thoroughfare. 
a natural conduit between these lowland plains and the stony plateau behind me. That plateau was constructed almost entirely from a rock called Dolorite, which seems to have spilled down over millennia into my yard. Dolorite is prevalent in lots of parts of Tassie, and a bloody fine rock it is too. One of our preeminent geologists once wrote a book about it, which he called The Rock Which Makes Tasmania. It's a material that's a big part of my life. I find various simple uses for it every day, as a step onto my front deck or to weigh down a tarp. Dolorite props open the door when I sleep, and it holds down my outdoor dunny seat, you know, so that a possum can't accidentally fall in there or something. Once in the logbook of a mountain hut, I wrote a series of poems that I called Glacial Erotics, which is a kind of joke you might get if you're a geologist or a bushwalking guide. And interestingly, the next walker who came into that hut actually was a geologist, and he started talking to me as if I was a colleague, which was a bit awkward, because really, I am not a geologist. Nevertheless, I might mention a few things here which perhaps will sound like a lecture. I promise to keep it quick. Dolorite was once magma. As the continents were gradually torn asunder, starting in the Jurassic period, this magma filled the rifts left behind. Where it didn't burst through the surface of the earth, it cooled into solid stone at a slow enough rate. And over time, the layers of softer rock that existed over the top of this wore away. And this all took millions of years. But today in Tassie, you encounter this dolerite in deep layers and great quantities. It's easy to find. The aforementioned geologist describes it as a fine to medium-grained, aphiric, hyperbyssal, intrusive rock. So that should help you. And actually, it's easy to pick out. Very many of our tallest mountains are of this variety of rock. It sticks up in distinct arrangements of column. And these columns, throughout millennia of cold winters, have gradually split apart and come crashing down in rock slides generally known with the beautiful word scree. And it is something of this scree that is scattered around me. Thus, this rock is the basis of life in this forest and the farms around us. Substitute dolerite for another stone and the ecosystems would be entirely different. Lately, I've been lifting up the strewn stone to see which insects have found the scattered rock useful. Almost every rock I pick up has spiders or earwigs or ants or worms or beetles beneath it, reminding me that we're all part of the same interconnected activity of the bush. Sometimes it feels quite strange to think of how the short-lived whims and idiosyncrasies of our lives are projected upon this laboriously slow process. After millions of years, these rocks have come to be here, and I have landed amongst them for my short time here and interact with them every day. Humans on this island have always been well acquainted with stone, then. Archaeologists today find the tools and artworks that the first Tasmanians made, with quartz or chert, for example. And somebody with the same career in the future may look at what we have done with the rock around us, and comment on the enormous amount of work we have put into moving it around, quarrying it here, 
dumping it there, using it as road base or fill, mining it and mining with it, grinding it into pigments, crafting it, building with it. It could be handy to have a preview of their synopsis. What we do with the world around us is not just our legacy, but it's our identity. It's our career on this planet. The marks we make in rock will tell us all sorts of things about what we're doing here and about who we are. A while back, a bloke named Jacob had a sort of spooky dream whilst he was camped out in an arid landscape. He used a stone as a headrest and dreamed of a stairway rising from the desert towards the stars. And in his dream, Jacob could see that the top of the ladder reached heaven and angels were busily scurrying up and down the rungs. It was a pivotal moment in that young man's life and to record this spiritually significant spot, Jacob took the rock he'd used as a pillow and poured oil over it, an ancient way of saying that something was special. And it became a landmark along what must have been a rough track through uninhabited country. Now little rock stacks, cans, can be found all over the world. Most of the ones I've encountered have been used as way markers, small mute signs on walking tracks that point the best direction on which to travel, or to signal the summit of a mountain. These days they probably get made mostly for aesthetic purposes, to be photographed. And yes, they can be beautiful, but cans stacked in the wrong place can also be misleading, and I've been caught in a confusion of cans on mountainsides where previous passers-by deciding to make their own private piles have ended up making way too many of them. If you're relying on these to walk in poor visibility, you can often find yourself walking in circles when there's a surplus. So I tend to kick over these unnecessary cans when I see them. If you're someone who makes them, 
sorry, sort of. Cairns can also be memorials, even graves. In Scandinavia I've seen rock mounds made to mark battles that took place a thousand years ago. They also get known as guardians of an area. The word can in some northern European languages often amounts to something like warden. And I have also seen high country passes where local custom has walkers add a stone to these hillocks of rock or even to write poems to add to the can or say prayers of gratitude. I don't suppose Jacob's oily stone is still to be found in the plains between Bethesda and Haran, but it obviously stood long enough to become a folk memory in that part of the world, made more permanent in literature when the stories of the Old Testament were written down. For a very long time, humans have entrusted memories to rocks, transferred stories to stone and had it tell our tales throughout the ages. Although it's not a given, there has been a reasonable assumption that the bigger these stone memorials are, the more likely they are to survive. Take, for example, Gubekli Tepe, in the foothills of the Taurus Mountains, near Turkey's border with Syria, where nearly 10,000 years ago clans of nomads wandered and hunted and raised what may have been the world's first temple. This was a limestone sanctuary with sculpted pillars and standing stones. Archaeologists have uncovered carvings of various creatures, grimacing wildcats, hedonistic boars, swooping birds, foxes, prehistoric cattle, scorpions, reptiles, and headless people, for some reason. Tools of flint and fragmented limestone are also found there, which makes scholars suggest it was an artist's workshop. No one can properly guess the motivations of these ancient hunter-gatherers who moved around the basin of the Euphrates River all those years ago, but they surely believed that the stone would keep some record of their encounters in that area, their span of life on the earth. And it has, for what is now a surprising length of time. Gubekli Tepe stands close to the centre of a range of ancient cultures who used rocks to remember in various ways, across a diversity of artistic styles. In many places, rocks of enormous stature were arranged by peoples who believed that this act would in some way reach towards something rather more transcendent than their own brief time on the planet. Stone circles, portal tombs, passage graves, subterranean galleries... Humans over much of the world have dreamed and grieved and celebrated with rock. On Sardinia there were once thousands of basalt towers. At Salisbury in England, in the middle of a green plain, sandstone and spotted dolerite were used to mark a giant burial site of some gravitas. In Brittany you can find a single igneous stone, scoured with quartz tools, enormous in weight, which today lays broken and prone in its field, but was once laboriously raised, thousands of years ago. There are megalithic memorials on burial mounds in Siberia, Mongolia, on the Korean peninsula. In Sweden, a site known as the Stones of Ale is arranged into the outline of a ship, and like so many of these rock structures, it's also aligned to astronomical themes set so that it faces sunset at the summer solstice, 
and used perhaps for observing the cycles of the moon. Which reminds us that there is a geology above us as well as below. I rarely think of it when I look up at the stars or the moon, but these two are rock. We now know, for example, that the lunar surface is made of basalts and anorthrosites, which perhaps wasn't common knowledge to the people of the past. I wonder if they'd have cared, or what names they had for the variety of stones they came upon. I mentioned this to someone I know who shrugged as I went looking for these classifications. Perhaps that sort of analysis isn't for me, they said. Geologists often use acid to test rocks for certain qualities. It was as though the cataloguing of every rock around us had the same corrosive effect on this friend's sense of mystery. I'm sure they weren't trying to suggest that it was bad to have studied geology. And I can say for sure that my experience of the world has been enriched by knowing how this diversity of rocks got here and indeed what some of them are called. But I guess some would argue that our acquisition of scientific knowledge has contributed in some way to a sense of separateness from our environments. And I am certainly all for any effort that erodes the ideas of human dominance that we've inherited. In part what I see as my task is to blend that knowledge with folklore and myth, poetry and music, to work a little bit of mystery back into it. I find myself thinking that when it becomes possible for me to travel again, I wouldn't mind going out in search of some of these large arrangements of stone and trying to put myself in a position of some of the ancients who intuited that these rocks had a magic about them and that they were an integral part of both the physical and spiritual world that they inhabited. To stand at the foot of a megalithic structure and feel a connection with the past, with the deeds and dreams of humans throughout history. So much of the philosophies of humans throughout the past have been related to the bare elements of life on Earth. It's only recently that we seem to have severed ourselves from them. Till then I kind of have my own megalith to honour and fear. It's a large wedge of dolerite that juts out of the ground just adjacent to where I park my car, and it just won't budge. I guess it's buried to a depth of a metre or more. When I first moved into the train carriage, I tried to heave it out, but it seems to be fixed there, a permanent presence. Okay, it's no Stonehenge. But if nothing else, it reminds me to be attentive when I'm reversing in its general direction, which may be converted to a metaphor. Take care if you're trying to travel backwards. At the moment, there aren't that many tourists in Tasmania. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Although it seems to me that's generally the nature of tourism. But I'm digressing. One way in which the shortage of tourists is a blessing is the emptiness of the roads. 
and I think particularly of the highway that follows the island's east coast, which I've been travelling fairly frequently over the past weeks. It's generally a journey of great beauty, especially given the ephemeral features of the season. The first white flag irises are out. Newly planted vines are giving out fresh green leaves. Lambs reach up towards their mother's bellies to feed. In the midst of that, you can also keep an eye out for more sturdy landmarks involving rocks. For example, there are plenty of well-built dry stone walls and an odd old spiky bridge that looks like a medieval fortification or part of a stegosaurus. And looking out over Great Oyster Bay, you see the luminous granite humps of the Freysenay Peninsula and the dramatic peaks of the mountains of Mariah Island and the curious rock island known as Ile de Foc for the animals that breed there. Foc is French for seal, just in case you didn't know. It shines like marble, capped as it is with huge quantities of cormorant shit. The phosphorus in which reacts with the bedrock, by the way, and becomes a geological phenomenon called flowstone. But I'm digressing again. Most recently I went down there to take a group of grade sixes on part of their school camp. In the brochure, it was called Coastal Explorer, and my mate Skip and I came up with a route across which we reckoned a bunch of 12-year-olds could scramble without hurting themselves too much. We spent the day slipping and clambering around a certain headland, crawling under fallen trees and shuffling across slopes carpeted with casuarina needles. And at intervals we paused to look in rock pools, or skip stones across the gentle surf, or collect smooth discs of colourful sea glass. One of my favourite moments was when a girl leaned onto a brittle plate of sandstone which broke, revealing a breeding ground of beetles, and she squealed as hundreds of them came cascading out of their hiding place all over her. A prominent part of the geology of that coastline is sandstone, and some of it's stained with beautiful patterns that seem deliberately painted. These are called gang rings, and they're the product of iron-rich groundwater percolating through the porous stone. In those same cliffs, the rock has dissolved a little, a reaction with the marine salt, which makes it look like honeycomb. And sandstone overhangs are known to have made useful shelters for the clans that lived off the generous resources of the coastline there for generations. The kids, and some of their teachers, were fairly obsessed with skipping stones. It's a skill that's hard to teach. I remember that when I was younger, I just had to attempt it over and over again until one day, by some miracle, my little stone strode across the surface of the water before sinking. The students who didn't quite have as much finesse, or patience, just took the biggest boulders they could and heaved them into the drink, splashing anyone foolish enough to be remotely in their vicinity. And a few of the boys went about collecting smooth dark stones, which they dipped into the water to polish up like onyx. One boy claimed that these were worth $20 a rock. In what marketplace, I'm not sure. But young'uns have their own economies and expertise, so I wasn't about to discourage them. 
And of course, the preciousness of a stone is in the eye of the beholder. Rare expressions of the earth are often most sought after. Lapis lazuli, emeralds, crocoite, gold. But I can simply list the rock varieties I might find on travels within a reasonably small radius and feel enthused, encouraged to explore. Dolerite, dolomite, conglomerate, basalt, mudstone, breccia, quartzite, laterite, serpentine, andesite. Perhaps no basic material in the world produces more angles and forms, more oddity, and maybe more beauty than rocks. And although there is no shortage of sandstone in my life, it was a couple of lovely striped specimens of this that I modestly brought home to help balance one of my more wayward book stacks. Precious in its own way. I also have a bowler tie with a stone set into it. A friend of mine who works in a store that, among many other things, specialises in gems, recently told me it was called Soda Light. Knowing the nature of her work, I asked her what powers or effects this stone might have. It brings calmness to the mind, she said, and I nodded. It brings emotional balance and calms panic attacks. Sodalite enhances self-esteem, self-acceptance and self-trust. It encourages the verbalisation of feelings, as well as intuition, sensitivity to truth, objectivity and rational thought. And, oh, she added, it can snatch the souls of your enemies as they walk past you. A useful rock indeed. I remember I was walking up a steep, slippery, intimidating slope composed of a rock whose very name suggested to me splitting, splintering, shattering. In an ancient dialect it might have been called the clatterer, or rattlestone. I was on a mountain of slate. It looked most like vandals had come through and wrecked what was otherwise an elegant mountain once upon a time, but as dark as shadow like an inverted gorge, a wedge of absence turned into petrified presence, and now a ruin. It was a tough slog. 
Hapa went step by step to a point high above any human habitation. You'd hardly even expect an insect or a rodent to make shelter in that pile either. It wasn't the point that I was trying to prove, but I knew I was in the vicinity of the spot where Prometheus had been trussed up, tethered to a boulder. His punishment for being a smartass. I scratched my head. What about Sisyphus? Wouldn't he have been exiled to this neighbourhood as well? And I shuddered to think of him pushing his stone up this treacherous mountainside, shelf after shelf of impertinent rock, unstable, mobile slate, miles of it, black and broody, rising up from the basin of the ponderous river where I too had started my journey, only soon to descend, or so I hoped. And indeed, nestled in the series of that fabled range, I found a village called Shatili. It looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. Something out of a Calvino fantasy, maybe. A cluster of monochrome dwellings tied together with stairways and lanes, all of it from slate. Thin plates of that stone stacked up and somehow staying in place. Some precarious balance that looked like it could be blown over with a stiff gust and sent crashing into the opaque creek that ran from one or another of the tenebrous peaks around us. I went into the village and asked for a room. The one I got was lined with timber and it had no windows. So to get fresh air I went into a communal dining area where they served me a mug of some kind of beer and a plate of dumplings. I took a close look at the rock in this context. It was mostly smooth, with the odd seam or blemish in it. Almost oily to touch, slick. Not as prone to breaking as you might think, but with the right tool, an axe, a hatchet, you could split it into fine layers like tiles. I tried to ask someone how this preposterous mountain range came to be. They sent me to the priest. His name was Father Petros. Of course. From the Greek, the old word for rock. His answer was the standard one. Pretty early on in the piece, God said there should be earth, and so there was. Yet I thought it a bit silly that someone in a place of this nature could still insist on calling the planet Earth. Surely you would call it stone. Oh, but eventually, I suppose, it would all wear down into Earth of a kind. It would weather. Lichen would slowly dissolve it. Bacteria would change its substance. We must not forget how much of where we live has a mineral origin, though. We exist even in arable land, on a thin sliver of soil, and what lies beneath a great strata of variegated rock, radiating heat from the molten core, bearing out its own immense weight like ballast, creating a finely wrought sense of gravity that has kept the galaxy balanced, functioning. Even the church was glistening black. Some ambitious architect had set more slate together to make that sacred house, although from somewhere they'd carried up fragments of white quartz for contrast and fixed a cross from this rock into the facade 
but now from within I heard a curious sound. The priest saw my attention piqued by the noise and so gestured for me to go inside. And there I found a young man, standing before a sort of long wooden frame on which was balanced carefully selected pieces of slate. And with a silver wand he tapped the rocks. And on what might be called a lithophone, he made the most ethereal, ephemeral thing he could from his native geology. He made music. It was like echoes of the sounds I'd made as I'd stumbled over the pass and then come clattering down towards his village. <laughs>